This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Fletcher. And I'm Mark Ethan. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on now? Well, we're talking about Western resolve in the fight in Ukraine. And, you know, it is dawning on people in the West slowly that this war isn't going to end anytime soon. There's not going to be a quick victory. And that it may take a long time for the Ukrainians to secure a decisive defeat of Russia and take back the territory that Russia has unlawfully taken from them. And the question is, will the West stand by Ukraine and help them achieve that goal? Or will we suddenly start getting weak knees and start pushing the Ukrainians to cut some sort of a deal that makes land concessions to Putin in exchange for an end to the war? What do you think, Danny? I'm beyond worried about this, you know, and it's not because we don't have the tools uh, and it's not because I'm worried about our stockpiles and it's not because- No, that's a worry. It is, but the biggest problems are not those. The biggest problems are to be found in the quality of leadership we have. It's not just Joe Biden. It's not just Kevin McCarthy. It's not just Olaf Scholz. It is the fact that within NATO, And among our allies, we simply don't have the resolve for a long conflict. We spend all of our time trying to think about how to get out of it, trying to game it out as if somehow it's three-dimensional chess, you know, and if only we're just that bit smarter, we'll be able to figure out how to walk the line between provoking the Russians and helping the Ukrainians. And the answer is, The game here is for Ukrainian victory. And for some reason, Joe Biden, but also Kevin McCarthy, and also everybody else in NATO can't fucking figure this out. Well, you know, I remember Jim Mitchell, who ran some of the CIA's black sites and was the guy who interrogated Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He told me this story, and it's in his book, that one day he was sitting with KSM in his cell, and KSM turned to him and said, you realize we don't have to win this war militarily. We just have to wait long enough for you to defeat yourselves by quitting. And that ended up happening in Afghanistan. And, you know, here we have a situation which is very different than Afghanistan because there's not American troops on the line. We're not taking American casualties. The Ukrainians are fighting their own war uh, of liberation, but they need our help. But his assessment of Western resolve still stands that our enemies around the world know or feel that they can just wait us out, (laughs) that they don't have to win decisive military victory right away to achieve their goals, that if they just fight long enough, we'll defeat ourselves by quitting. And I worry that that's what we're going to do in Ukraine. I have exactly the same fear. And again, you know, look, it's not that we should be blithe, that we should race into every conflict. It's not that we should be ignorant of our own threats and want to absolutely be battle ready in case there's a threat to our own homeland. 
On the other hand, you know, you and I have talked about this so many times. I feel like we're being boring. Now, losing in Ukraine is a gift to China. It's a gift yep. to Putin. It's a gift to Iran. And we're not fighting. Yes, I understand how devoted Americans are to keeping their HIMARS stockpiles and their Abrams tank stockpiles. But at the end of the day, for some inexplicable reason, and I real I mean this, some inexplicable reason, people believe that somehow we should just have this drip, drip, drip because we can afford for this war to go slowly. You know, but forget about life and limb. You know, these aren't our lives or our limbs. They're Ukrainian lives and limbs. And maybe the truth is we've been lying to ourselves about America all these years. That in fact, maybe we never had the necessary resolve. We pulled the hell out of Afghanistan. We pulled out of Iraq. We lost the war in Vietnam. The only war we really decisively won was the one where we set our goals so low that they were easily achievable. But you know, so World War maybe, II? well, yeah, that, Mark, Mark, we won Cold War. World War II almost 80 years ago. Okay. Yeah, Cold War. And we won and, the Cold War. The, we did, but we wouldn't have won the Cold War if, there, if it weren't for one president. That's and true. that quality of leadership, which I think the Ukrainians are enjoying now, we are not enjoying to this day. And, you know, I, I hate to make this about us, but at the end of the day, that's, that is what is important, is how the United States confronts threats. We keep telling people, you know, I know you are upset about the price of eggs and you are damn right to be upset about the price of eggs, but... <laughs> But a national security threat, a 9-11, an attack on our soil or on NATO will make you forget about the price of eggs in a heartbeat. And we don't want to commit our troops to these battles. We don't want a war in Europe. We don't want a war in China. We want victory. And that's what I just, I don't get. I'm I don't, I don't know that the drip drip is as conscious as that. I think I mean, if you look at the Biden, first of all, the Biden administration is creating this, uh, this problem for itself, because on one hand, there's, oh, we can't have a long war in Ukraine, but then they're dragging it out through, you know, handing out these weapons piecemeal and resisting. I mean, if you just look at it, you know, they forced the Ukrainians to fight for months with Soviet era weapons. Then they finally gave them the HIMARS, these advanced artillery, but they modified them so that they can't fire longer range missiles. They won't give them the attackums. They wouldn't give them the uh, the MiG fighters. They wouldn't give them uh, Abrams tanks. As you just go down the list, they wouldn't give them Patriot, which is just a defensive weapon. All of it because they were upset about, uh, you know, they're worried about provoking Putin and Putin getting upset about it. But they ended up doing most of those things. And if they haven't done them, they probably will. I just saw t- the other day, Joe Biden said, there's no way we're ever giving F-16s to Ukraine. What that means is eventually we will, <laughs> but it's gonna be like six months from now. And so we're creating our own crisis of resolve because instead of just giving the Ukrainians what they need to win decisively, we're forcing them into a stalemate, forcing them to fight with one arm tied behind their hands. And then people here in Washington are, you know, pulling their hair out saying, oh, the Ukrainians aren't winning fast enough. And we probably maybe we need a peace deal. And, you know, just give them the weapons to win and they'll do it. Do you remember what the operation in Iraq was called at the beginning of the Iraq war, right? It was called shock and awe. And there is something hugely important about shock and awe. And that is not giving your enemy enough time to think up a new strategy. That's really what we've seen on the ground in Ukraine is that while the Ukrainians have really fought 
not just valiantly, but brilliantly against the Russians. The Russians have figured out how they can drag this out. They have had enough time to move past their shock, to move past their initial awe of Ukrainian resistance, which they didn't think would be there, to go back to their standard strategy, which is to throw bodies at the problem, not with the hope of victory, but simply with the hope of attrition to the point where they end up with the kind of frozen conflict we've got in Georgia and we've got it, you know, with with Crimea and we've got in Armenia and in other parts of what was the former Soviet Union. And again, shame on us. That's another reason why you want to get your act together quickly, because otherwise you give the enemy time to regroup. No, it's 100%. I truly don't understand why we're taking so long to make these decisions and dragging it out. And then uh, to add insult to injury, Biden keeps going around calling uh, inflation the Putin price hike, which is if you came up with a strategy to undermine public support for a war in Ukraine, I couldn't think of a better one than saying, oh, the war in Ukraine is why you're paying you know, so much for eggs and gasoline. So, you know, they're they're doing the right thing, but God, they're slow. I mean, it's just, you know, this, the odd thing is, He's following the Reagan doctrine in Ukraine, which is, you know, the Reagan doctrine is after Vietnam, we didn't want to go send our troops around to fight all these wars, but we had to push back on Russian expansionism. So we just decided to give weapons and training to other people to do it for us. And that's what we're doing in Ukraine. He's no Ronald Reagan. <laughs> He's not doing it with the decisiveness that the Reagan administration did in Afghanistan and in Southern Africa and, and in Central America. So... This is everything that you and I are worried about. Our friend who we've had on the podcast before, Yaroslav Trofimov, wrote a piece titled, The War in Ukraine Will Be Long. Is the West Ready? And I think you're going to get a sense of what the answer is, but he was kind enough to be willing to join us again to talk about the piece. We'll hyperlink it in the transcript. He's the chief foreign affairs correspondent of the Wall Street Journal. He covered the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan in 21. He's been in and out of Ukraine since January 2022, most of the time there, if if his Instagram is any guide. He's been at the Journal since 1999. He is the author of two books, Faith at War and the Siege of Mecca, both of which are excellent. Great to have him again. Here's our interview. Well, Yara, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be on the show again. Well, it's great to have you. So you wrote a fantastic article for the Wall Street Journal. The headline was, the war in Ukraine will be long. Is the West ready? Is the West ready for a long war in Ukraine? I don't think so. You know, there is a maybe a recognition now on the political level that yes, this is not something that's going to end anytime soon, but it hasn't quite translated into action that is necessary to sustain this effort. Obviously, you know, the Russian economy is a very small economy in the global scheme of things, about the size of Spain, but President Putin has moved to transfer to wartime footing, you know, making sure there is ammunition uh, being produced, you know, tanks and equipment. Whereas in the West, things are picking up, but very, very slowly. When we invited you to join the podcast and talk about this piece and other issues surrounding Ukraine, you said your piece really touched a nerve. I'm really curious what the reaction was. I think there was a lot of reaction. When the piece came uh, came out, it was a moment where people were still 
living uh, sort of in the world where Ukraine is winning sort of the afterglow of, of the tremendous victories that Ukraine has achieved in September, October, even going to early November. But that, that period has ended. And now the realization is sinking in that uh, the mobilization that President Putin has carried out, as disastrous as, as it would have been politically, did help the Russian military to stabilize the front lines. Ukrainians are fighting a battle of Russia's terms for Bakhmut and losing some of the best people there. And more importantly, this, this whole struggle for who's going to be able to ensure the adequate supply of ammunition and, and, and armor is not necessarily being won by, won by the West because of the bottlenecks in military production in the West. And so that was really the nerve of the attachment. I think a lot of the debate that happened about the tanks uh, that were supplied, well, the decision was made to supply tank, Western tanks to Ukraine the following weeks, uh, came from people realizing that things are actually not that good uh, for Ukraine in the long term. Wow. It's striking to me how opinion has been able to turn on a dime. First it was, they're going to lose, it's all over. Then it was, victory is theirs. You know, they're wonderful, plucky, plucky Ukrainians who are going to defeat the Ruskies. And now it's gone back to, I don't want to say defeatist, but certainly reasonably despondent conversation about how this ends up happening. You know, if I'm in Ukraine, I'm very unhappy about how this is playing out. Yeah, the, the, sort of the mood in Kiev has been a bit yo-yoing since it started. And there have been these phases. I think the first phase was when the Americans left uh, Ukraine in uh, late January, early February, you know, shut down the embassy, pulled out everyone, you know, told the Ukrainians, you know, here's two boxes of javelins, good luck. And, and then we're very surprised, uh, the administration was very surprised when the Ukrainians didn't collapse in three days or three weeks and managed to, uh, to defeat the Russians around Kiev using Soviet, Soviet vintage weapons. I mean, the javelins were helpful, but they were a drop in the ocean compared to uh, the artillery and the tanks uh, that the Ukrainians were using against Russian artillery and Russian tanks. Uh, then there was the second, after this Russian withdrawal, there was, there was this, as you said, this wave of optimism, but the Russians restructured their operations and, and actually had a plan that made military sense to cut off the Ukrainian military's best units in the Donbass. And that's when, you know, late, but nevertheless, uh, not too, too late, you know, first the administration approved the supplies of artillery because the Ukrainians had run out of artillery ammunition by then. Uh, by and large, uh, and that happened in, in May. And then towards the end of May, finally, HIMARS. And HIMARS really was a game changer and, and stopped the Russian offensives up until the Ukrainians bounced back. And it took advantage of the fact that there was actually a superiority in manpower on the Ukrainian side for most of this war. You know, when Putin invaded Ukraine, he only, used the, only did it using uh, the professional military whereas Ukraine mobilized uh, uh, its reservists and civilians since the get-go. And the biggest flaw of the Russian strategy was this lack of manpower. So the mobilization that Putin ordered uh, in uh, September rectified that. So the Russians now no longer have a manpower problem. They have an artillery, uh, munition, and, and, uh, and equipment problem. But the Ukrainians also have that. So there we are now. And I think the question going forward is, who's going to get the better gear to win this war? Is the way that we have been slow rolling the weapons, isn't that just dragging out the conflict and making it a long war? I mean, 
first it was javelins, but not HIMARS. Then it was HIMARS, but not attackums. Then it was no tanks. Now we're giving them tanks. It seems like we keep doing the right thing, but like six to eight months late. <laughs> like, well, that's it, certainly so, that's, the problem we face is that the war that the war is getting dragged out. Wouldn't it be just smarter to throw everything we have at it and help the Ukrainians win decisively now? Well, that's that's certainly uh, the opinion in Kiev, and it's not just this. You know, look at the Patriots, right? So now Patriots yep. are okay, but but uh, you know the, the 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 Ukrainians were asking for the Patriots before the war. They were asking for the Patriots, you know, in the first month of the war. You know, how many thousands of lives could have been spared by supplying them the air defenses early on? It's hard to tell. And obviously, the part of the reasoning in the administration is that you know they don't want to provoke Putin and cross the the red lines. And so they adopting what they, what you know people describe as the boiling the frog strategy, sort of you know if you throw it in at once that would be crazy, but you do drip drip drip, kind of the red lines get blurry and blurrier. But the other argument is that probably many people are thinking that the long war is uh, to Russia's disadvantage and that time plays uh, against Russia. I'm not sure that's actually true. And and I think the big debate now is that uh, many people are realizing that wait a minute, well maybe time is on Russia's side. And that's why we're seeing even countries like France, uh, let alone Germany, that are actually, you know, starting to get serious with the with with the heavy weapons for Ukraine. I mean, time's on the Taliban side, so why wouldn't it be on Putin's side too? Well, I mean, it's not quite the same because obviously Putin is fighting a foreign war of aggression on a foreign country soil, where the locals don't really like his troops, and you know he has to strain and militarize his economy. And that is not doing great. Uh, you know, his attempt to blackmail Europe uh, with um, energy supplies has failed spectacularly. We have seen that, you know, Germany is now no longer using Russian gas. And yet, you know, in the Eurozone, the economy grew last year and it's probably going to grow this year. So there is no crisis in Europe. One of our colleagues wrote a piece in the Washington Post, Leon Aaron, who I'm sure you know, saying that Putin has basically embraced Stalin's tactics that, you know, while they may not have better stuff, as you rightly outlined, while they may not even have better strategy, that seems absolutely clear, while Putin may not be popular at home, nonetheless, they have more people, they have more bodies they can throw. And you rightly note that we don't have that much patience, the Europeans don't have that much stamina. Is this Stalin strategy sustainable for Putin, though, in Russia? Well, I think, first of all, you know, Russia is not the Soviet Union. If you look at the demographic uh, structure of Russia, it doesn't have that many young men to fight wars. So population-wise, Russia has about three and a half times the population of Ukraine. So, uh, you know, if everybody goes, every able-bodied man goes to fight, they will have an advantage. And it's also true that this mobilization, uh, despite all the problems, despite, you know, horror stories you hear, despite some of these mobilized soldiers being killed by the hundreds in Heimer strikes, went off. And if there is another, uh, without significant disruptions, significant protests, and if there is another wave, he could draft another half a million people probably. But when Stalin won, you know, the war, he won the war thanks to American land lease. You know, without American... Uh, oil without American weapons. It's hard to imagine how the Soviet Union would have resisted the Germans. The Chinese so far are not supplying Russia with military equipment, weapons, ammunition, despite Putin's desires, and are trying really hard to, to maintain neutrality, at least militarily there. <laughs> and so there's no one else who could really bail him out.
So his position is, is much weaker. But you do see the, you know, the absolute disregard for human life, the sort of massive frontal attacks without rhyme or reason. You also see this really interesting phenomena of Wagner, where they basically decided to resolve their social problem by sending much of the prison population to death in Ukraine for the promise of uh, amnesty if you survive six months, and only very few do. And so they're certainly not, not mourning the tens of thousands of the rapists and murderers that are getting killed in Ukraine and that kill some of Ukraine's best. And when I went to Bakhmut a couple of months ago, you know, on one side there were the criminals of Wagner, on the other side there were you know, tennis players and musicians and engineers uh, fighting in volunteer units. Talk a little bit about the defense production side over here, because we are depleting a lot of our stockpiles of the weapons that we're providing the Ukrainians. Is that a problem? Is this it does end up being a long war and we have to supply them for a long time? Are we going to run out? Well, I mean, the U.S. is not going to run out. So the U.S. is going to stop supplying Ukraine before it reaches critical levels. No, that's but, what I mean. Right. But yes, there is. I think there is a very serious risk that... Uh, the current levels of uh, supplies of 155 millimeter artillery shells, which is you know the basic artillery caliber that uh, Western supplied howitzers use in Ukraine, how will not be sustainable beyond the summer. So if you look at the fire rate, Ukraine fires about 90,000 of these shells a month. And you remember that in the early days of the war, the Russians were firing 90,000 a day when they had unlimited, what they thought was unlimited supplies. And the U.S. makes about 15 to 20, maybe, thousand by, by the end of this year. So you can see that, you know, the consumption is three times the production. And, you know, obviously there are plans to increase the production in other places, you know, the Germans, the Norwegians, but none of that will catch up uh, to consumption levels of current rates for the next two or three years. So there is, there is this looming crisis of ammunition for the Ukrainians. One of the things that you described was that at the start of the war, except for a handful of javelins, that they were essentially fighting with Soviet-era weapons. And the Russians yeah. were at the time using their advanced precision weapons. And they've depleted their stockpiles of those advanced precision weapons, while now all of a sudden the Ukrainians have the HIMARS and the advanced precision weapons. Is that disparity still evident on the battlefield? And could that shorten the war in the sense that if we added the attackums to the HIMARS and gave them more precision weapons that they could turn the tide of this while the Russians still have are depleted when it comes to smart weapons? Yes, yes and no. So I mean, the Russians still have precision weapons. Obviously, they still fire cruise missiles every week or two. And some of them are quite precise, unfortunately. What really happened with the HIMARS is that when the Russians invaded and then the front line stabilized around uh, April. The Russians were operating on the principle that the Ukrainian range is about you know, 20 miles, which is the range, maximum range of, of, of howitzers and artillery. So they put all the command posts, ammunition, uh, depots, logistics outside this 20 mile, 25 mile range. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden when the HIMARS appeared in the battlefield in July, this entire network was within range and was obliterated spectacularly in, in just a few weeks. So now, after learning these better lessons, the Russians have repositioned all their nodes uh, outside Hamas range, which is you know about 50 miles from the front line. And the Ukrainians don't really have a way of striking there. So if they get, I don't know, it's Atacams, there are other technical solutions, there is extended range Gimlers for Hammers, then they could really strike the entirety of this logistical network that, that is on the coast of the, of the Black and Azov Sea and, and disrupt this land corridor between Crimea uh, and Russia. Well, we modified the HIMARS. 
we modified the harm to reduce their range, didn't we? Was that a mistake? Uh, well, I mean, it's not just that. It's not just technical modification. There was also a commitment extracted from Ukraine at the time that it will not use the HIMARS or other Western artillery systems against targets in Russia proper, which meant that in a city like Kharkiv, which is 20 miles over the border, was being shelled day and night from across the border, and the Ukrainians could not use American weapons to suppress this fire. The fear about attacks was the fear that Ukraine would use these weapons on Russia, and that would cross one of Putin's red lines. Of course, after that, the Ukrainians used their own modified drones to fly missions very, very far away in Russia, striking you know, the main base of Russian nuclear strategic bomber fleet in Angels, you know, hundreds of miles to the east of the border. And Russia did nothing about that. All of the fears about Russia's red, red lines you know, have actually been mistaken. <laughs> well, if you remember at the very beginning of the war, Poland proposed to you know, ship to uh, Ukraine its MiG-29 fighter jets, and the Biden administration vetoed uh, this plan as, as provocative and, and because it could spur a pro-Russian reaction. Well, you know, the Poles did it anyway. They just you know, dismantled the planes and shipped them as spare parts, quote-unquote. So lots of things that were unthinkable, you know, in the beginning of the war, or in the middle of the war, are now very much thinkable. And now there's talks, talk by, you know, several Western governments, the Dutch, now even the French, of supplying fighter jets to Ukraine. We've been really focused on the daylight and dollar short quality of Western assistance to Ukraine. And I think there can be no denying that Mark laid it out exactly right. You know, we promised something, then we said no, then we said yes, but we said yes later at a moment when it would have been much useful three or four or five months ago. So no question about that. But what about yeah. inside what about inside Ukraine? Uh, you know, Zelensky has remarkable personality, you know, Reagan-esque in the sense that he has many of the qualities of an actor, and he has really galvanized not just Western communities, but also obviously his own people. But you know, they recently got rid of a whole series of senior people because of corruption. How are things going at home in terms of political resolve? You've been back and forth repeatedly to Ukraine. What are you seeing? I've been in Ukraine most of you know, the past 11 months. I think that the political resolve is unwavering in terms of the goals that are Ukraine's war goals to liberate all of Ukraine's territory, including Crimea, uh, in its internationally recognized borders. There is no one in Ukraine, uh, sort of political and public sphere, who doesn't agree with that goal. So, uh, and if Zelensky were to compromise on this under Western pressure, it's very likely he would be ousted by an uprising. Really? Uh, yes. So, I mean, he, you know, the Ukrainians have a long history, long, you know, in the last 30 something years, history of rising up against presidents when they go against public opinion, you know, and they rarely reelect presidents. Only one Ukrainian president, uh, was re-elected for the second term in its entire history. So that is a red line, that the real red line that Zelensky really would have a really hard time crossing. So you're right, it's, it's a great time for Ukraine to have an actor as a president because his biggest achievement was that he managed to speak over the heads of politicians to the public opinion across, across the world. And it's really that public support for Ukraine that he helped generate that forced a lot of the governments that didn't really want to help Ukraine in the beginning to do send weapons and to get involved. And the war that, you know, pretty much everyone in the West was okay with Ukraine losing a year ago is now the war that the West cannot afford to lose because now it's the West's own war. 
and that's that's I think that Zelensky's political genius was in making it happen, often by speaking over the heads of the politicians. But you know, he is not the only person in Kiev, and you know, they're very capable generals who are actually running the war, like General Zaluzhny, <coughs> the, the commander in chief of the Ukrainian military, and other generals. We're talking about Western resolve. Let's talk about Israel. I know Danny's going to get upset with me about this. But, you know, here's a country that is a democracy under threat from totalitarian neighbors that should have an affinity for Ukraine. There's probably a lot of Ukrainian Jews in Israel who are citizens there who escaped anti-Semitism. And now you have a Jewish president of Ukraine who's fighting for his life against a totalitarian dictator. And Israel's done nothing to help the Ukrainians despite pleading. I mean, there there was just a strike the other day in Iran suspected that they took out some drone facilities. What's going on? Why is Israel not helping more? And do you think that this was a strike that was intended to reduce the weapons going into Ukraine or was it for other reasons? Yeah, it's, it's two separate issues. But let me try to tackle one by one. I think if we talk about Israel and Ukraine, you know, we should be mindful of a very long and sometimes very dark history of the Jewish people in Ukraine. And, uh, you know, you, a lot of the people who came to Israel from Ukraine or from Russia, but especially from Ukraine in the 70s and the 80s, even in the early 90s, they brought with them uh, this old sort of notion, the Soviet notion of what is Ukrainian. You know, back in those days, Zelensky was not considered Ukrainian. Back in those days, you know, everybody in Ukraine had an ID that said, you're Jewish, you're Russian, you're Polish, you're Ukrainian. And Ukrainian nationalism was still, you know, quite exclusive, sort of very sort of early 20th century, let's say, sort of romantic ethnic nationalism. The biggest achievement that Ukraine made in, in its independence quest after 1991 was to reinvent the idea of what is Ukrainian. So, you know, the first decision that was made was that, you know, everyone in Ukraine is Ukrainian, you know, and, you know, of any, it's not about blood, it's not about language, it's about the idea. And the idea of Ukraine over time became the idea of freedom. Sort of, you know, as as the as the opposite of the idea of Russia. I was I was just talking to someone uh, in Ukraine the other day, and, and sort of, what is Ukrainian? And the idea that the Ukrainian now is someone who thinks that the Soviet Union was a bad thing, and that's the dividing line. Because you have people in Ukraine where one brother you know, is a governor of Donetsk for Ukraine, and his other brother is working for the Russian intelligence across the front line, and you have lots of people with families who are divided like this. But for many of people uh, who came to the U.S. as well or, uh, or to Israel from Soviet Ukraine, that change hasn't been registered because they remember that very often very anti-Semitic Ukraine of the 80s and the 90s that doesn't exist anymore. And so for them, the Russian propaganda does resonate. And, and that is a significant part of the electorate. That's in fascinating. Where people watch, you know, the 15 channels of Russian television that is available on the cable in, you know, every Israeli home. Not just that, Mark, but as I've told you, you know, during World War II, and admittedly that generation is dying, but uh, they have children like me who remember what people said, uh, that it was better to end up with a German than it was to end up with a Ukrainian during the Holocaust. Well, that, well, that was true for my mother. My mother fought in the Warsaw Uprising and her, her, her father said, whatever you do, don't get caught by the Ukrainians. But, right. Poland, so, but, but Poland seems to have gotten over it. <laughs> Poland seems well, to recognize that the situation is different right now and that the Ukrainians are fighting against uh, our common enemy and and all the rest of it. So it's it, that that change hasn't happened in Israel. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really fascinating because it's certainly much safer for someone who's a religious Jew to 
walk the streets of Kiev than say London or Brussels. And you know, hundreds of thousands come to Uman every year for the, you know, the Hasidic pilgrimage, including this year during the middle of the war. So, uh, and you know, Zelensky, despite being Jewish, you know, that factor has never ever come up in the in the in any of the sort of political campaigning during his election, which he won seventy three percent of the vote. So, and I think the attitudes are really different between people who left Ukraine and never came back, and people who have gone back and seen what it is now and how just completely different it is from what it was 30 years ago. Uh, now, go back to the strikes uh, in, in Iran. Obviously, the fact that the Iranians have supplied Russia with you know, close to 1,000 by now uh, Shahid drones that seem to be reasonably effective, and that this cooperation is really injecting money into the, the Iranian military industries, and technologies, and so now you have for, this, for the first time this open, full-fledged technological and military cooperation between Moscow and Tehran. It is worrying for Israel. It's worrying for the Saudis. It's worrying for the Emiratis. And I think that is one of the reasons why uh, uh, some of the things that happened in the last few days in Iran happened. And now, now I'm saying this without knowing any any details, but that would be logical that that is seen as a danger by Israel. Because what the Iranians are doing in Ukraine, they're training for a strike on the real enemy, which is Israel. Absolutely. Just bringing it back to current day, one of the questions that I think lingers in all of our minds is, is there a decisive victory for Ukraine on the horizon? I would say two, three months ago, a lot of Western capitals were fussing in their minds about whether once Ukraine had won back all of the territory that was taken in last year's war, they would end up continuing to try to take back Crimea. Now, of course, we are talking about sustaining the gains that they made in this war and not so much worried about their expansion of their targets. Is there something that we could do? Is it the F-16s? Is it you know more HIMARS? Is it wider range? Is it more tanks? Is it faster tanks that could be decisive for Ukraine that could actually you know give the lie, if you want, to the piece you wrote, which is that the war will be long? Well, you know, uh, wars are by definition unpredictable, uh, and this one has seen its fair share of twists and turns. So it's not at all impossible that you know come springtime. The Ukrainians organize an offensive that surprises the Russians somewhere, and they have another massive victory like they had in September and October. Obviously, the there is no magic bullet there. There is no one, no, no one single weapon systems that would enable that. What the Ukrainians need is uh, to train soldiers in combined arms warfare, so they could combine all these pieces that are getting from the U.S. and allies. You know, the HIMARS, the tanks, the artillery, the drones. Uh, you know, the air defenses into a system that outsmarts the more numerous enemy, which, you know, well-trained armies like Israel's, you know, know how to do. So the training is, is also a critical piece. And there is a lot of Ukrainian soldiers now being trained all over Europe and in the U.S. That's something that the United Kingdom pioneered several months ago and turned out to be quite uh, uh, quite a smart idea from Boris Johnson. Now, uh, the tanks... If they come in sufficient numbers altogether, they're integrated with the Bradleys and the Strikers into combined arms, you know, armor armor brigades. That uh, that also could be very useful. But they, again, wars are unpredictable. It's really hard to be able to say now also what Russia will do and what Russia's plans are. You know, they have deployed half of their 300,000 mobilized soldiers to the front. 
the other half are not in the front yet. So they are also preparing for something. What do you make of the rhetorical excesses that Lavrov and others are now engaging in about the over-the-tank sale? This is now war with NATO. Is it just the usual blah, blah from Moscow trying to scare everybody into slowing the supply of weapons to Kiev, or do you see a change? No. I mean, they've been saying this from the very first day. I mean, when Putin made his declaration of war speech on the 24th of February, he said, don't you dare, you know, interfere in our campaign. You know, we will show you a lesson. We will never forget. Uh, you will never forgive if you, if you try to help the Ukrainians. And then what? And then nothing. The Russians having a, having a hard time taking Bakhmut. How are they going to attack the West or NATO? It's, uh, it's just more empty rhetoric at this stage. They need years to rebuild the military to become anything like a threat to, to even Poland at this stage. For me, exit question. So if the resolve of the West is questionable for a long war, what is the alternative to a long war? Um, I mean, is there a peace settlement short of a decisive Russian defeat that is in any way acceptable, not just to the Ukrainian people, but Zelensky, as you've described his political standing, but also that it wouldn't be just a pause for Russia to regroup and rebuild, as you just said, so that they can go and finish the job? Well, there is no, uh, no, I don't think there is one, because the Russian intent hasn't changed. It's to destroy Ukraine as a state. I mean, it's, the entire war is based on the idea that Ukraine and people doesn't exist, and that Ukraine is an artificial construct, you know, trimmed up by the Austro-Hungarian intelligence, as, as some Russian officials say. So, you know, any ceasefire would just give Russia time to rearm, regroup, and, and go for the next round. And, and as, they, as they have in every instance, whether it was the Minsk Accords or it was in any other way, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh, it doesn't have to be in Ukraine. That is their MO. Well, yeah. Or, or like in Georgia, they, you know, they install, help install in power uh, a pro-Russian oligarch who they can live with. Is, exactly. it, is it fair to say, Yaro, that Russia is to Ukraine what Iran is to Israel, a totalitarian regime committed to the destruction of that state? And there's no possibility of peace between those two countries? Well, I mean, there is a possibility of peace between Iran and, and Israel. You know, if you look at the history of the Persian nation, uh, through most of its history, you know, it didn't have a lot of problems with the, with the Jews, if anything. Emperor Cyrus I mean, is... with the current regime. <laughs> right. Yes. It's the issue of the regime. Yes. And I think the, uh, you know, the, the Putin government in Russia is, is as implacable a foe of Ukrainian statehood as the uh, Ayatollahs ruling Iran are implacable foes of the Jewish state. That's for sure. And I think nothing short of the elimination of Ukrainian statehood will, will, will satisfy Putin. Lovely. We know the nicest people. Yaro, it's always, it's, <laughs> it's always fantastic to get your insights. And I, think, I know I speak for Mark as well and all of our colleagues. We love your reporting from, from Ukraine. It's been balanced. It's been fair. But it's also just been so nuanced and fascinating. We really uh, appreciate it. And I, I hope you stay safe Thank you. Thank you. and continue fighting the good fight. There aren't, there aren't that many great journalists who are covering foreign policy anymore. And so we're really, really appreciative. Well, thank you for having me. It's great like always. Thank you, Yara. Okay, Danny. So when I said that Israel was doing nothing for Ukraine, you said, what? So go ahead, defend Israel. 
My job isn't to defend Israel. My job is to make sure that you don't, you know, spout crap. So, so Israel has not done. Israel has not done nothing for Ukraine. Israel has done as much as it can without giving overt support. And I think the reasons for that are fairly complex. I don't happen to agree with the choices that Israel is making here, much as you don't agree with them. But I really liked it when, um, well, we we did an event recently at AEI with Walter Russell Mead, who we've had on the podcast, who came and talked about his book, who talked about the U.S. relationship with Israel. And he was asked, why is Israel not doing better on Ukraine? You know, in a sort of an outraged tone. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, first of all, I don't think they're doing as badly as, as is being reported, which I think is true in part. But more importantly, he said, you know, why are we asking why Israel's doing such a shitty job? Why don't, why don't you ask me why Germany is doing such a shitty job? Why don't you ask me why the United Arab Emirates is doing such a shitty job? Why don't you ask me why Turkey is doing such a shitty job? You know, why, in other words, why are we singling out Israel as being the sole laggard here? They are in a world of suckitude that includes yeah. the United States. Yeah, I think I agree with that, Danny, but I think it's a dodge because we do beat up Germany all the time. You and I both do. I think Olaf Scholz is a disgrace. <laughs> and Germany's, you know, the, the only upside of how weak and vacillating Germany has been is at least we don't have to worry about them anymore, right? <laughs> There's a, the Fourth Reich will not rise in any time soon with these people uh, running the country. But that doesn't absolve Israel. I, well, I understand that they it, have a complicated security situation with Russia in Syria, which is it, which is that the Russians are allowing them to, to strike Iranian positions in Syria and, and prevent them from using those to attack Israel. And so therefore, they're in an uneasy dance with Moscow over that. And so if they became more active in Ukraine, then the Russians might unleash Iran and Syria to attack Israel. So I get that. That's a different situation. I hope that this uh, strike in Iran was a Ukraine related uh, move. One of Rumsfeld's rules about the coalitions of the willing is that the mission defines the coalition, the coalition doesn't define the mission. And so everybody can contribute what they think they can do. And so if what Israel can do is take out drone factories in Iran with covert operations, that's awesome. <laughs> so I, I'm hoping because I'm a fan of Israel and a supporter of Israel that uh, that, that that is what happened. Well, I, you know, look, Israel can do better, but so can a lot of other countries. And I guess I'm, that, that's that's one of the reasons why I, I'm always uncomfortable with the desire to single them out. But I, and again, I know you're a big supporter of Israel. Let's just talk for one last second before we say goodbye to everybody about this supply issue, this yes. stockpile issue, because you and I have wanted to do a podcast on this for some time now, and we need to get our ducks in a row and get someone who really knows what the story is. But you know the the notion that somehow we we remember that Seinfeld episode. I can't spare a square. The the one where Elaine <laughs> Elaine, Elaine didn't want to give any toilet paper to Jerry's yep. girlfriend, right? Yeah. But I do feel like the I Biden don't have administration. A square to spare. Exactly. I do feel like Biden's you know sitting in the toilet, uh, stockpiling all the rolls in his arm and saying, "I can't spare a square because we are fighting." Wait, what what battle are we fighting exactly? And if he is so well informed that we are in such dire shape that we can't help an ally win a war against an, a shared enemy, then why isn't he doing something about that underlying problem? Well, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, the Raytheon CEO 
told Jennifer Griffin at Fox uh, that we've used 13 years worth of stingers and five years worth of javelins in Ukraine in just in just a year. The reality is, I don't think this is a threat to our national security, as some people are raising it, because the Pentagon is never going to allow us to go below readiness levels by giving weapons to Ukraine. So the question becomes, do we get to a point where we hit those le- those minimum readiness levels and we just don't have any more weapons to give them. And that becomes a big problem for the battle in Ukraine. But the bigger problem is why the hell is our defense industrial capability so depleted? Why? Yep. why exactly. I'm sorry, we're the greatest nation on the face of the earth. I mean, this is the nation of, you know, Rosie the Riveter. I mean, why are we not using the Defense Production Act to gin up a more defense production? Why have we allowed our defense production capabilities to atrophy. And even before the war in Ukraine started, we had made all these foreign weapon sales to Taiwan that had been authorized by the Trump administration. And we're behind on deliveries because we don't because our defense production can't keep up with the orders. What the hell is going on with that, to coin a phrase? I mean, I think I want to get somebody on the show to explain to us how the hell we allowed our defense production capacity to atrophy to this level and what that means for our national security beyond Ukraine. Right. Well, I can tell you the short answer to that. And it's we're a country of butter, not gums. Rosie the Riveter is dead, but we need to do this. Absolutely. It's yeah. a good reminder. And, and now reminder. we're talking about, by the way, on Capitol Hill, our genius Republicans are forcing a debt limit fight with Biden. And what what happened in the last debt limit fight besides Republicans losing the next presidential election when we did this in 2011? It was it was sequestration. It was the is the Budget right. Control Act, which ended up, you know, it didn't fix social security and which is driving our debt. And it didn't fix, uh, you know, all the other uh, entitlement programs. But what it did, it gutted our defenses and ended up reducing our defense spending. And so we're at the start of a new Cold War with Russia and China, which they have chosen to wage against us. And at that moment, we're going to choose to not apparently social security is off the table again. So we're not going to take on entitlements. So what's on the table? Kevin McCarthy said it this Sunday, defense. Well, I hope that uh, there are some Republicans who are willing to tell him not on my watch. God willing. God willing. And with that, we say thank you very much. Don't forget to share with your friends. Don't forget to subscribe to our Substack. Don't forget to give a kiss to your family. Thanks for listening. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.